Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Aspiring Black Social Worker Podcast. I'm Shaw, your host. I am a third year MSW student and this podcast is my landing ground, a place for me to process all that is happening in grad school and a space for me to discuss the various mostly random topics that have been on my mind during the past week. Please take a moment right now to subscribe and rate this podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a moment to add a review. I would really appreciate it. Also, follow me on Instagram at AspiringBlackSocialWorker. All right, so this episode, we will skip the story time section segment of the podcast because this podcast is not only an episode in the season but it's also a excuse me a follow-up to my field placement so my field supervisor will be listening and I doubt that he wants to hear all of my randomness (laughs) We will hop right into the segment of what's been on my mind this week. And I have to tell y'all, these last weeks have been hectic. And all that's really been on my mind is grad school. Y'all, I am heading into my last semester of graduate school. And when I tell you I'm ready, I am ready to graduate But that means I have a lot to do. So first thing that I've been really focusing on is finishing up all of my final assignments for classes, which really just means I've been doing a lot of writing. I think I told y'all, but next semester I have to take an extra class, which means that I will technically be taking four classes as opposed to the normal three. So what we do at at my school in the part-time program is we have a class for field. It's a field class, um, which the assignments are very minimal, but it does count towards like your credit requirements. <clears throat> and, you know, there are like, we also have a self-care assignment due or something like that every semester. So instead of just having like two normal, like fully full syllabus classes, um, I'll be having four. I mean, sorry, three. Let me make sure I said that right. So instead of having two like classes with the full syllabus, I'll be having three classes with the full syllabus. Um, and getting to this point was kind of hard because while I knew that I needed to take an extra class, there was kind of some mix-ups regarding the elective that I was taking. So normally I take two electives in the summer, I decided not to this summer for like financial reasons and also I really enjoyed only having one class <laughs> like it was a nice break um so I knew that I would have to take an additional course in the spring semester <clears throat> what I wasn't expecting is having to drive an hour and a half away every Wednesday night to take the class so earlier in the like I think like towards the end of summer as I was kind of like looking at what I needed to do I kind of like browsed the spring semester classes and saw like some 
elective options that I could take in my current um, campus location. But when it was time to register for classes for the spring, those options were not available. So I guess maybe they decided not to offer them or, you know, wasn't enough interest. I don't, I'm not sure. But I ended up having to enroll in a course that was an hour and a half away um, from like 6 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night. Um, but... While that seemed to be my only option, I actually reached out to my academic advisor and kind of explained to her what was going on. And she really made things work for me. And now I'm taking a completely different class remotely. So I say this to say, make sure you're advocating for yourself. Make sure you're speaking up and telling people what your needs are. Um, Because the people that work in our academic advising office did not want me to drive an hour and a half every Wednesday, just as much as I didn't want to drive an hour and a half every Wednesday. So I really appreciate them. Um, And now I have something that will work for me, work in my schedule without me having to, you know, take that drive. And while most people say, oh, an hour and a half isn't really that far, um, it actually kind of scares me, or not scares me, but makes me a little nervous to drive late at night by myself because when I was an undergrad at the same university, an hour and a half away, I decided to come home after like a night of partying, waking up early to go to work, working like six hours, and then I decided to come home, which is here, so that's like an hour and a half drive. And I fell asleep at the wheel and like totally totaled my car. Totally totaled. Yes, I totally totaled my car. And I thought the car looked so bad, y'all. It was a miracle that I wasn't seriously injured. So now I am just really cautious about driving when I'm sleepy. Um, And the class that I was going to take, like I said, it didn't until 930 at night. And if I'm being honest, most nights I'm in bed by nine because I'm completely exhausted by like eight. (laughs) So like nine is like, girl, you have tapped out, go to sleep. So that just kind of made me a little nervous. And I was like, I'll do it. I was like, I'll just have to go to Starbucks every Wednesday and like like a triple shot of espresso or, you know, get a five hour energy. Like I didn't know I was even considering like maybe getting a hotel room on Wednesday nights. Like I really didn't know. Like, maybe I'll reach out to some people I know in the area and see if I can spend a night at their house. Like, I really was trying to figure this thing out. But luckily, I don't have to do that. So, anyway, that took some time to figure out. <clears throat> I had to complete my application for f- employment-based field placement for next semester. As you know, I'm no longer at my the internship. Um, And that application took me longer than expected because I was waiting to hear back about a particular interest that I had surrounding DEI work at my organization um, because it's just something I'm really, you know, it's really important to me, but it didn't work out. Um, So part of the field placement application, you have to actually go ahead and like work on your learning contract. So I was hoping to have like everything that I had planned on the learning contract. And when that didn't work out, you know, I was like, okay, fine. I'll just have to get it submitted without that. But actually no worries about that because one of the ladies from the internship that I'm still in contact with who doesn't work there anymore either, but um, she shared a DEI certification training with me that was super affordable for me. 
and I'll be attending that in January. So I'll be like certified DEI uh, in DEI. No, I think it's February, come February. So it turned out better than I actually hoped because I've been wanting to become certified. Um, so even though that internship was just too toxic for me to remain, I can truly say I have made some great connections with two incredible people who I consider friends. And I'm, I think I was there just to meet them, honestly. Which brings me to today's topic, which is what has been consuming me for the last two weeks at least. Um, do y'all remember me saying that in order to complete the hours needed for my field placement this semester, I would be writing a paper on abusive supervisors, creating a survey, interviewing some people about their experience? Well, that is what I have been doing, except I decided to make it into a podcast episode instead of a paper. To be honest, I am really tired of writing, especially like the academic type of writing where you have to like cite all your sources every darn couple of sentences and trying to like piece together the literature in a way that flows well. And honestly, I just wanted to share with you all because I've been telling y'all all about what I've been going through and what I've been doing. I also think it's an important topic and it's pretty interesting to like hear other people's experiences as well. So let me give you all the format of this because it's going to be different than my usual podcast episodes. What I will have is a three-part mini-series because I didn't want to make a super long episode, but I also didn't want to cut off or edit the interviews because I was really like intrigued by their stories I thought it was a bit therapeutic for them and for me to kind of hear because of my experiences. And I also just never edited anything. So like I didn't want to try to learn in the short amount of time that I have to wrap this semester's assignment up and like be done for the semester. So in this episode, <clears throat> I will discuss the literature I found on abusive supervisors and the survey results. And I will wrap up with some general tips the next two episodes, you will hear from two social workers who graciously volunteered to share their stories with me and with you all. You won't hear much from me during those episodes because I wanted them to speak freely without me really interrupting. You may hear me like, mm-hmm, because I'm like an active listener, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but I really try to let them just talk and be very you know, attentive to what they're saying. I will, of course, provide some type of introduction and wrap up of the episodes, but the episodes are really all about the story. All right, so let's start the next segment. I am calling this segment the literature review. <laughs> um, and just so y'all know, I like right before I started recording, I drunk some water and it feels like it's like stuck in my throat. So you might be hearing me clear my throat a lot, okay? Um, so the first thing I want to say about, well, the first thing I want to start off in this section is saying, talking about how I started thinking about toxic supervisors from the perspective of domestic violence and the characteristics of abusers. 
I'm pretty sure I've said this on the podcast before or probably multiple times, but I work for a domestic violence organization and I have been for well over seven, well over seven years. I won't say well over, but it'll be eight years next year, of course. And so several years ago, I was dealing with a toxic individual. This person wasn't my supervisor, but she did hold a high position and a certain amount of power within the organization. And I'm sorry, it was difficult. And I remember sitting in my office one day and I pulled out the power and control wheel and I realized how many behaviors of abusers match the behaviors of this particular person. I sat there for about 10 minutes and made a list of what I had noticed in this person and how she treated me and how she treated others. And this was the first time that I really put it together that abuse isn't limited to intimate or familiar relationships, but any relationship can be abusive. And specifically in supervisor-employee relationships, because the supervisor naturally has some power and control over their employees built into the job description. So as the years passed and I was no longer in a position where this person could affect me, I forgot all about this. But like when I started the internship this semester, it all came flooding back to me. I even shared the power and control will with a staff member at that organization because I wasn't the only one being mistreated there. And I thought it would be a good like visual representation to help name some of the behaviors exhibited by the CEO and another employee just to kind of help that person realize that this behavior was abusive. If you aren't familiar with the power and control will, let me explain. And you can always Google this. Um, but the definition of domestic violence is a pattern of behaviors used to gain or maintain power and control. Abusers use several different tactics to kind of wield that power and control. So with those different tactics come different types of abuse. All abuse is damaging to the recipient of the abuse, though. Um, and this episode may be a bit more educational than my normal episode so just rock with me so abuse can be physical verbal and emotional mental and psychological financial sexual and religious and cultural i will share the actual diagram of the power control wheel on my instagram page but the power control will details these tactics. So kind of imagine like a pie chart. Each part of the chart details a specific category of abusive tactics. These tactics are coercion, coercion and threats, intimidation, emotional abuse, isolation, minimizing, denying and blaming, using the children, using male privilege and economic abuse. So those are all like the kind of overarching categories of abuse. And then within that pie chart, each category kind of has like examples of that abuse. So for instance, to give you hopefully an even clearer picture. So on the pie chart, the pie piece that has emotional abuse listed as the category, it will then have like an example, examples listed such as putting the 
person down, making them feel bad about themselves, calling them names, making them think they're crazy or gaslighting, um, playing mind games, humiliating the person and making the person feel guilty. And there are just so many parallels between abusers and intimate partner relationships and abusive supervisors. I used the example of emotional abuse because that is common in both intimate relationships and work relationships. And just FYI, the power and control wheel was created by the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth, I think I'm saying that right, Minnesota. Okay, so this is the foundation that I use to search for the literature on this topic. And lo and behold, there are many, I'm talking about many, many articles and research done on this topic. So y'all, all those years ago when I was dealing with that toxic person, I really thought I was like on to some novel idea. Like I made this up in my office that day. Um, like I was like, I am a genius. Um, but of course, this is not a new concept. <laughs> a lady named, um, her, I think her, I don't know. I think she's alive still. A lady named Patricia G. Barnes created a power and control wheel for the workplace years and years ago and published it on her website. Um, the website is www.abusergoestowork, abusergoestowork.com. So sorry. <clears throat> I cannot post her power and control wheel on my Instagram due to her terms of use. So please check out her website. Um, but I will try to explain the differences between her wheel her power and control wheel and the one for domestic violence. So on her power and control wheel, the categories are still coercion and threats, still intimidation, still emotional abuse, minimizing, denying, and blaming is there. Instead of using children, it is using others, which means like other people in the workplace. Instead of male privilege, she has using supervisory privilege, which means um, treating um. The supervisor treats the person or the team members as servants, takes credit for their work uh, without giving them any kind of acknowledgement, withholding necessary instruction or feedback. And then like it does have economic abuse, such like the regular power and control will. But this one is more about threatening like demotion or dismissal from work as a form of control. Also like giving out rewards and different like... um benefits without regard to merit but just like who they want to do who they want to give it out to um so those are the biggest difference I guess I should say like with coercion and threat it's more about um threatening or issuing unfair warnings or giving unfair evaluations having unreasonable demands with unreasonable consequences that kind of thing um I think everything goes as self-explanatory, but I wanted to clarify those. So, let's see. I think it was some more things I wanted to say about her power and control will. Um, oh, yes. So, like, with isolation, the abusive supervisor may isolate the employee, making it clear that the employee is unsafe to other um colleagues or peers and by unsafe it's more like this person is viewed as like 
a pariah by management and so you shouldn't be around them or you may kind of get that same look so it's kind of like stay away or you will also be placed into like you'll receive the same treatment this person receives the target of the abuse receives um what else the abusive boss or supervisor will emotionally abuse the victim put in the person down calling them names belittling their work um making them feel like their work is subpar even if it's not like just like whatever they can to make the person kind of question themselves and question their work um and i use these categories from the workplace power and control wheel on the survey i created that we'll talk about a little later in the episode Okay, enough of that. Let's jump into the literature review. Okay, so what I'm going to do in an effort to cite sources, I am going to tell you all the names of the articles and try my best to pronounce the author's last names in case you want to pull them up for yourselves or read them. This is my way of being ethical in in my podcast review of the literature and another reason I wanted to do a podcast also instead of a paper is because I felt it would be easier to review the literature because there are several different theories and I think they're all true you know like more than one thing can be true at a time but trying to synthesize them in a way that makes sense was just a daunting task when I had so much other things going on so let's start off with some definitions from the literature all right so abusive organizations are defined as organizations that operate with callous disregards for its employees not even displaying what might be considered a minimum amount of concern for their human needs employees in these organizations typically experience persistent harassment and fear because of the um intimidation in the oppressive environment, these organizations do not care for their employees and often dehumanize them by requiring them to work long hours after work. They um, have a high stress environment and they have unreasonable productivity and performance demands and sometimes even substandard working conditions. Of course, you will find abusive supervisors in abusive organizations because that is the workplace culture and oftentimes it is embedded into the policies practices and institutional like system there but I want to be clear many times you will find abusive supervisors in organizations that are not abusive or toxic so you can have like that one-off kind of abusive supervisor Um, so let's define abusive supervision. Abusive supervision is defined as the subordinate's perception of the extent to which supervisors engage in the sustained display of hostile verbal and nonverbal behavior, excluding physical contact. So what they're saying is abuse is at the perception of the target, right? So Somebody may not see this as abuse, but another person may see it as abuse. Um, 
which is why it's important to have like that power and control wheel so you can actually say hey here are some of the tactics and behaviors of abusive people and if it happens consistently and there's a pattern to it it is most likely abuse um abusive supervisors manage their direct reports through the use of fear coercion intimidation emotional abuse economic abuse isolation etc um if you listen to the podcast normally you will know that i believe that words have power so i know i said subordinates earlier I don't like that word, so I'm going to try to use the term direct report in its place. If I use subordinate, just know that I am reading some of this directly from the article, so I may not catch myself in time. Uh, But abusive supervision can also have like a negative effect on employees' well-being, such as their mental, emotional, and physical well-being, and just their overall productivity at work. So we will start off with an article titled Nightmare Bosses, the Impact of Abusive Supervision on Employees' Sleep, Emotions, and Creativity. The last names of these authors are Han, Harms, and Bai. And I, I was drawn to this article because of my experience at the internship, and it definitely had an impact on my sleep and my emotions I won't say my creativity because I think the desire to be productive outweighed everything else. And I was like, let's just put out this work. But anyway, um, this article starts off by directing readers to a 2013 survey by Gallup that revealed that the main reason people quit their jobs is because of their bad bosses. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean their bosses were abusive. They could just be bad leaders. Um, but that is a significant factor um, to consider. So we are focusing, though, on abusive supervisors. The authors in this article are interested in three factors, creativity, sleep deprivation, and emotional exhaustion. The goal of their study was to explore how abusive supervision impacts employee creative performance, so like employee creativity and how that relates to their performance at work. Um, And also how sleep deprivation and emotional exhaustion contribute to either increased creativity or decreased creativity. So they define creativity as the generation of innovative and useful concepts, which can range from making small suggestions that can improve processes to solving large-scale problems or even creating new products. So no matter what level of employee or what type of work you do, you need some type of creativity to do your job, whether that's just making a process for yourself simpler or making a process for the entire organization simpler or more efficient. Um, you need some type of creativity. The authors discuss the need for psychologically safe environments in which employees can explore, fail, and succeed. And if employees feel safe to do all those things, then creativity can thrive. The authors theorize that stress from abusive supervisors can cause sleep deprivation and emotional exhaustion which in turn depletes their employees' social and psychological resources, resources, which then limits creativity in the workplace. So there have been studies that um, show that 
positive experiences with supervisors and organizational leadership can lend to high quality sleep, while negative workplace stress can lead to fatigue and insomnia. Sleep deprivation has serious medical implications, which I'm sure we know, but those implications are poor mental health, poor physical health, diminished cognitive functioning, which impacts critical thinking. So you might have diminished critical thinking skills, um, lowered job performance, diminished well-being, and increased accidents. Um, just as important as sleep deprivation is emotional exhaustion. Emotional exhaustion is when you just feel like your energy is depleting and it's due to extreme psychological demands. Studies even show that emotional exhaustion is the most critical factor in burnout and stress. And this is why so many people, especially those in helping professions, um, hate when people say to us that we should not be tired because we don't do any physical labor. Because y'all, we are emotionally exhausted. We are experiencing extreme psychological demands. And that's not necessarily because of abusive supervisors, but that can be because of just dealing with people who have issues okay um so that was a little aside back to the article so when you have a supervisor <laughs> um who supports you including like emotional support you are less likely to burn out or experience anxiety around your job but when you have supervisors who are not supportive um and even abusive you are likely to experience emotional exhaustion. Workers who are emotionally exhausted can experience physical and mental issues, poor job performance, and they are more likely to participate in deviant behaviors in the workplace, which we'll go a little bit more into what deviant behaviors are later. Um, so this study actually did not find that abusive supervision directly impacts employee creativity. They did find that um, abusive supervision significantly affected emotional exhaustion, which indirectly impacts employee creativity. Because if your employees are emotionally exhausted, they are less creative. <laughs> um, so the study also found that abusive supervision was positively related to sleep deprivation, meaning that as abuse increases the likelihood that the target of the abuse experiences sleep deprivation increases as well. All right, so that's the first article. The next article that we're going to discuss is about why employees stay in abusive situations. This article is literally titled, Why Do Good Employees Stay in Bad Organizations? It is written by authors with the last name Buchko or Buko, um, Boucher, <laughs> and Buko again. I don't know. I guess they're related. I don't know. But anyway, the title of this article just reminds me so much of the question that people ask around people who are abused in intimate relationships. A lot of people ask, like, why would someone stay with a person who is abusive? And oftentimes, un un unfortunately, they use this question to pretty much 
like question the target, the the victim of the violence as a way to deflect from the problem, which is the abuser. Because they don't nor they don't normally ask you why would someone abuse another person and what's wrong with that person who does the abuse. Um, they question why the abused partner would remain in such a horrible situation as if the abuse is their fault. They're like abuse apologists, I guess. Like I said, trying to find out like it must be something good that make you stay or, you know, or maybe you're exaggerating your story or maybe this didn't really happen or maybe it's not as bad as you say it is. You know, people say like, oh, well, everybody fights. Well, not everybody fights in a way like this. Um, so this article just reminded me of those questions. Um, so this article starts off explaining that good organizations have supervisors who are friendly and approachable, who work to cultivate a culture of trust, loyalty, mutual respect, and show genuine concern for their employees. The bad companies are ones that have, um, that allow supervisors to lead by fear, to lead by bullying, and also to place constant productivity pressures onto their employees. This article, you know, discusses how there are bad organizations that do really well and are successful using this method. And I never really thought about it, but it makes sense because the only reason there could be companies using like these abusive tactics is because it works and there are some other organizations who are models for success using this method meaning it works for them it'll work for us um so you know i guess that as horrible as that sound it makes sense and the article i really you should read it because it gives some examples like i think microsoft and amazon are like examples of like companies that were once considered like very bad to work for or maybe still considered bad to work for or abusive so definitely check out this article um it goes on to discuss reasons that employees stay in toxic work environments using the psychology of abusive relationships as their foundation which i just really found fascinating so the first consideration um is economic dependence um, which makes the most sense, right? Most people are working because they need an income. So it is a difficult decision to leave a job that supports you and your family. It doesn't matter if you're living paycheck to paycheck or making six figures or more. Um, you need a job. And the difference is that someone may need their job to ensure that bills are being paid, there's food on the table, and this type of person may, and I say may because it's a wide range of people in the world, but this type of person may lack the education or the skills to easily secure another job, while other people may need their job to maintain their standard of living that they have grown accustomed to or keep like the perks and benefits that they enjoy that they get from the job. So like I know some people may get like a company credit card and they get to have like all these fabulous lunches or they may have um you know mileage that they can like fly or stock options or a company car like they just kind of have like these perks and benefits or just like fantastic health benefits you know whatever the benefits are they may have it okay so the authors of this article explore how um 
oh, let me back up. The second consideration is psychological commitment to an organization. And this is when the authors explore um, how people place values, place value on their job titles, the roles within the organization, and even just the company itself may be um, like a value to them because it's about social status and people are willing to put up with you know, abusive environments possibly just to say, hey, I work for Google or hey, I work for Twitter or I work for Amazon or, you know, some upping, I work for Apple, like whatever. And it's not just tech companies. I'm sure there's like, you know, very, you know, great, well, not great in name, like healthcare companies or, you know, whatever, car companies. Um, So they do it because it's about the social status and where they work and their roles become a part of that person's social identity and how they place values on themselves and how others place value on them too. (laughs) And I can see this as being like a strong factor because I think about how often, you know, when someone says, you know, you know, tell me about yourself and we lead with, well, this is where I work and this is what I do. Um, so that right there should, tell us how much value we place on our jobs and this may be something something to explore if you know this is how you respond when people ask you about yourself or this is how you think about yourself you might want to explore if your self-identity is wrapped up in the job that you have excuse me the third consideration um of why someone would stay at an abusive work environment is interdependent commitment. This has three separate elements that I'll cover. There was more, but I'm only covering three because these are the three that just make the most sense um, in the context of this conversation. So the first element is the quality of alternatives. So this is like a person may be experiencing abusive supervision but they have to look to see if there are attractive alternatives available, right? Like, so this is highly dependent on the economy as well. Like, are there other jobs and positions available that will fit your skill set, your interests, and your salary requirements? If not, employees may not see a better option, so they stay. Because, you know, like I said earlier, they need to provide for their families or maintain their standard of living. The second element is the fear of the unknown, You most likely have heard the phrase, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, or the phrase, the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know. I don't know how I like that phrase that much, but I've heard it quite often. (laughs) And, you know, people do have that kind of like, I don't want to jump ship and go to something potentially worse. The last element of interdependent commitment is investment. And I think this is a huge one. Um, Just as a person in an abused relationship may consider how long they have been in a relationship um, and what they have given and sacrificed in their decision to stay or leave, the same is true for employees in abusive supervision relationships with their, you know, supervisor or organization altogether. They may take into consideration the time they've spent, the effort they put into the job, the emotional energy is, you know, spent, 
you know, friendships they've made. A lot of people make friends at work. Um, and But this is also like a social environment for them because this is where they see the people they're closest to. Um, events that the company may put on that they really enjoy or memories they have when times are good or even just like benefits. Like I said earlier, those perks um, that you may get from your job or even just the health benefits that are expensive without you know, an employee kind of contributing to those plans. So if they feel that, you know, the pros outweigh the cons, they may stay. Um, And, you know, I wish people would, like, leave, but I can, like, doing this literature review just kind of helped me see, like, it's not always black and white, all right? And I knew that, like, of course I knew that, but like kind of having it laid out in black and white for me was just kind of like, yeah, that's true. I can see why you would do that. <laughs> so, you know, as you can see, employees stay for many of the same reasons that spouses and partners stay in abusive relationships. Feeling like you have given your all just to kind of give it up can make a person feel like a failure. It can be humiliating. It's also scary to leave, you know, a job and face, you know, uncertainty in your, you know, income or uncertainty in who were you going to work in and how is this organization going to be? What's the workplace culture here? Can I fit in? Can I make it? Because another thing that I believe that I didn't really see in the literature, but this is just what I believe is that experiencing abusive supervision can make you start to question your own abilities and if you have what it takes to succeed in other environments um so yeah it can just be kind of scary right all right another article which i won't get too deep into for the sake of time because i already know these are going to be long episodes um this article discusses the role of self-blaming guilt The article is titled, When Victims Help Their Abusive Supervisors, The Role of Elements, Self-Blame, and Guilt. The author's last names are Troster and Kwakebeke. I know I messed those up, Um, but just search the article title because it's actually really interesting, but it's kind of, it's very detailed too, which is why I'm just going to give you a quick summary. So the authors in this article conduct two separate studies and like combine them into this like article here and um they are looking at abusive supervisors and how employee supervisor relationships play a part in productivity due to self-blame and guilt on the part of the employee For background, they are basing this study off of previous research that has shown that abusive supervision can lead direct reports to being more productive. Most of the literature states that typically when employees experience abuse, they externalize the issue and blame the supervisor. Um, People in this type of situation will retaliate against the supervisor and or engage in some type of deviant behaviors while preparing to quit and find a new job. But the authors of this study believe that abusive supervision can lead direct reports to increase their cooperation in helping behaviors 
towards the abusive supervisor. So they did a study in the studies. I'm not going to go into it. I was going to tell y'all, but let me shut up. Their studies confirmed that their hypothesis was true. In cases where employees believed that they generally had a good relationship with their supervisors, they wanted to preserve it. So when the supervisor became abusive towards them, they often internalized the issue. Instead of externalizing, they felt guilty and blamed themselves for the problems as if they did something wrong. And so when they experienced the guilt and the self-blame, they increased their helping behaviors and their cooperation with that supervisor to make up for their mistakes or wrongdoing. All right, so as you see, this is why I wanted to do a podcast because it's a lot of different information here, um, which all makes sense. All right, finally, we will look at what happens when people stay in abusive environments and how it affects the workplace culture. Give me just a moment because my daughter is asking me for something. All right, so this article is titled Abusive, sorry, Supervisor Abuse Effects on Subordinate Turnover Intentions and Subsequent Interpersonal Aggression. The Role of Power Distance Orientation and Perceived Human Resource Climate, Support Climate. The author's last names are Richard Buncoyer, Chen, and Ford. Look it up, y'all. As I am sure you all know, abusive supervisors can make the work culture difficult to endure. In addition, abusive supervisors, in abusive to a, a, in addition to abusive supervisors, the authors also research what they call subordinate deviant behavior, meaning that abusive supervisors causes cause feelings of anger, frustration, and helplessness in their direct reports. And to cope with these feelings, the direct reports may engage in deviant behavior. So deviant behaviors are voluntary actions that violate organizational norms and also threaten the well-being of its members. It can also include behaviors that target other co-workers, supervisors, or the organization as a whole. They are calling this um intrapersonal aggression on the part of the person who's been abused so the person who's been abused is exhibiting intrapersonal aggression towards other people in the organization and they are saying that this aggression is displaced aggression so Displaced aggression is when the supervisor's direct reports take their frustration out on someone else, most likely someone who has less power than the supervisor. Think like a direct teammate, someone in the same position, or someone who that person may have power over. The authors found this theory to be supported in their study and found that abusive supervisors make their direct reports want to quit, but until the direct report leaves, they have displaced aggression towards other people at work 
And they found that if organizations have a supportive human resources team and an overall positive workplace and culture, like think this is a one-off supervisor who is just abusive, then the displaced aggression and other deviant behaviors may be negated or lessened. All right, y'all, I'm talking a lot and my mouth is getting dry, but I'm going to push through, okay? That's the dedication I have. Um, <laughs> in an effort to give a clear picture of both sides, um, there are studies that have been completed that look at why supervisors become abusive. Most of these studies say that supervisors are provoked into abusive behaviors by their direct reports due to low quality of work or low productivity. I couldn't find, when I say most, I mean all the articles I found. I'm assuming there has to be some somewhere that don't say this. Because to me, this is just like victim blaming and I'm not getting into this. Um, but feel free to look into it yourself. I just cannot give any credit to it because I don't think there's ever a reason to be abusive towards someone. There are other ways to get your point across. There are ways to speak to people that's respectful. And especially in a field like social work where we have a code of ethics that call us to treat others with respect, to be understanding, to respect people's boundaries, to be empathetic and helpful and advocates, and call us to be non-discriminatory. Because I would be lying if I said I didn't think discrimination played a role in some instances of abuse. You have to consider that supervisors aren't always abusive to all of their direct reports, right? So sometimes it's just like one or two people they're abusive towards. So I am fairly certain that gender, race, culture, disability, sexual orientation, and age plays a role in some of these um, abusive supervision cases or instances. Um, yeah. All right, let's wrap up this lit review. I want to say that I know the definitions say that when someone is deciding that a supervisor is abusive, is really kind of, you know, abuse is in the eye of the, be the beholder kind of situation or the eye of the target of the abuse. Um, but now that we know the research surrounding abusive supervisors parallel the research on domestic abusers, we have to call it like it is. If a supervisor has a pattern of repeated abusive behaviors, that person is abusive. It doesn't matter if one of the targets of their abuse isn't really bothered by the behavior, it is still abuse and it will most likely spread to other people and negatively affect the workplace culture. Um, it's really workplace bullying and it should not be tolerated. I will discuss the suggestions um, from the articles on how organizations should handle abusive supervisors in the tip segment, the tip segment. But what I want to say now is that not one article that I read recommended terminating abusive supervisors. And I really just found that interesting, I guess, um, like they didn't recommend restorative justice in any way um, as a solution. So. In my mind, I'm like, if there is no justice for the targets of the abuse, it seems like the organization is okay with the behavior and would most likely lead the people who are being abused to quit or engage in like those deviant 
retaliatory and aggressive, intrapersonal aggressive behaviors that um, I spoke about earlier. Um, and since we've already established that these type of supervisors are abuses, their abuse will most likely not stop with this one person just because they left or quit. They will be abusive to whoever fills this role or other direct reports or heck, you know, just other people in general. Just thinking about my experience from some years ago, I wasn't her direct report at all. Um, so this is going to eventually cost the organization more money and time to have to keep recruiting new staff, but also is going to um, eventually get around that this organization does not really care about its employees. All right. Also, what I hope you got from this segment is that experiencing abuse in the workplace increases a person's chances of um, experiencing mental and physical health symptoms and even diagnosis. Everyone responds differently to abuse based on their personality, their relationship with their supervisor, their feelings about the organization overall, and the support they feel or don't feel from HR. And, you know, even, you know, we talked about their economic needs and social values, like, will this, will leaving this job affect my social status and how I see myself and how I see, how other people see me? So those are, I just, I guess I'm saying like, there are so many reasons people stay or people leave or people, you know, participate in those deviant behaviors. Um, it's really, I guess, like I would say a case by case basis, um, depending on that person. And I know that you can search for other articles on this topic and find other reasons um, that people, you know, of the ways people react. Because I saw those articles and it's just so many I couldn't, I could not like synthesize all that and I couldn't even read all those articles. It was just too much. Um, so I hope this was um, informative and helpful. Let me know if y'all like this kind of information. Um, I enjoyed it. It's a little more scripted because I like was having to like write down points from like the articles I read, but I found it really interesting. And maybe I found it interesting because it happened to me. So it was just um, fun for me to write about. But yeah, that's the end of this segment. Okay, finally, we're going to discuss the survey. Um, I am, I've decided not to discuss the tips today. Only because this episode is getting really long and I am tired of talking, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, because I've been working on this podcast all day. So I also need to like go engage with my family, uh, but I need to get this done as well. So um, let's see. The survey, what I did was I broke down the workplace power and control wheel by categories and I gave like examples of you know what it means to have the traits in that category and I asked people if they're I separate them all and I 
ask people to check which traits and behaviors their supervisor or a supervisor, not necessarily their current one, but like any supervisor, exhibited repeatedly. Because, of course, abuse has to be a repeated pattern behavior. So the categories, once again, were coercion by using threats. Let me let me actually pull it up. Coercion by using threats, issuing unfair warnings or evaluation, um, having unreasonable demands of productivity. Um, the second one was using intimidation to instill fear, using verbal and physical aggression or excessive micromanagement. Third was using emotional abuse, such as put down, silent treatment, humiliation, disrespect, name calling. Um, the next one was minimizing, denying, and blaming by making light of their abusive behavior and accusing you or other team members of being too sensitive. Then the other was using others, using coworkers to incite a mob mentality, co-oping senior managers and HR as allies in the bullying. Um, the next was using supervisory privilege by treating you or other team members team members as servants taking credit for work they did not do withholding necessary instruction or feedback and finally using economic abuse by threatening demotion or dismissal as a form of control and i added an option for others so they could just tell me what they saw as abuse or other behaviors that they felt were you know abusive tactics and I, in total, got 64 responses. And guys, thank you to everybody who, like, truly submitted the survey. Because I posted the survey, I want to say, Wednesday or maybe even Thursday of this week. And it's now Saturday. And I closed it earlier this morning. So for me to get 64 responses that fast, I'm really very grateful. Um... And just like I thought, most people have it, have experienced um, abuses with these behaviors. Now, this is not saying that the abuser, I'm sorry, the supervisor was abusive. It's saying that they have abusive behavior. So, you know, they're like abuse adjacent, at least. Um, so I'll give you the responses. 61% of people have had supervisors who use coercion and threats. 64% of people have had supervisors who use intimidation. 51.6% of people have had supervisors who use emotional abuse. 62.5% of people have had supervisors who minimize, denies, and blames them or their coworkers. 54.7% um, of people had the supervisor use others against them to create conflict. 64% of people um, had supervisors who used supervisory privilege. And 29.7% of people experienced economic abuse threats by their supervisors. And y'all, I, yeah, I was surprised. Because all the people that I interviewed or that did the survey were social workers um, or social work students who were already in like a helping profession. So it just kind of blew my mind that we will be treated 
by other social workers in this matter so consistently. Um, let's see. Only, let's see, out of the respondents, only 4.7% of people said that they believe that they're, they never had an abusive supervisor. 95.3% of people believe that they have had an abusive supervisor. And like I said earlier, abuse is about the perception, but based on the traits listed here, they were definitely experiencing some form of abuse. Um, and I also asked about like their feelings of guilt and self-blame, feelings of anger towards their supervisor, if they did something to kind of like mediate the effects by like working differently, or even if they retaliated in some way. And then I gave them an option to like put other and let me know what they did. So 43.8% of people experienced feelings of guilt and self-blame. 64.1% experienced anger. 54.7% of people um, experienced, I'm sorry, decided to work differently to decrease the abuse. And 12.5% of people retaliated towards the supervisor. What that shows is that a lot of this research that has been done is true. Um, a good a good bit of people, more than I expected, said that they experienced feelings of guilt and self blame. So they were doing things to kind of make themselves like to kind of compensate for what they thought they did wrong, right? Even though they did nothing wrong. They may have did something wrong, but it doesn't like mean you should be abused. Let me say that because, you know, people, we're not all perfect at work. I know I'm not. So you may have made a mistake or something, but that does not mean you should be treated or mistreated um, in an abusive way. 64.1% of people experience anger towards the supervisor, which is consistent with the research that said that pe most people externalized the um, behavior and blamed the supervisor. Um, and then people decided to work differently to decrease the abuse. So that is changing your working style to kind of stay off the radar or even trying to increase your productivity to make your supervisor happy. And then 12.5% uh, participated in some type of retaliatory behaviors, which I thought was very on brand for social workers, but not necessarily on brand for um, the research because a lot of the research... The research showed that typically that's what people do. They retaliate. Um, but social workers, good job, ladies and gentlemen, y'all. And good job, everyone. I don't want to um, exclude anyone. So good job, everyone, um, for not being retaliatory. I know it's hard because I have a vengeful spirit sometimes, guys. So, <laughs> like... Even when I think back to like my internship, I definitely like said some things just because I was mad. Like I definitely put that girl in her place. I definitely told the CEO how I felt. I was mad. I had a little retaliatory um, behaviors. And even when I was in, like I told you about the toxic individual from years ago, 
I didn't necessarily do anything negative because I thought it would affect my supervisor who I adore and I didn't want it to like come back on her. But I did things like I just had a silent treatment. Like I wouldn't give that person the time of day. And they recognized it and they mentioned it to me later. Like you wasn't talking to me. No, I was not <laughs> because I don't, I don't have time. And if I can't really say what's on my mind, it's best that I don't say anything. <laughs> um... Let's see. It was some really interesting results. One of the biggest things I noticed that I wanted to make sure I mentioned is that a lot of these toxic experiences and abusive experiences happened while y'all were interning. And that hurts my heart. That hurts me deeply because when I was experiencing this with my internship, I really thought it was like, it was just me, you know, nobody else was going through this. And I actually felt kind of like a little embarrassed because I was like, gosh, because it was a, it was an internship that I had fought for, right? Like this was not a normal social work internship. This is something that I wanted to do and then it didn't work out. So I felt embarrassment, but I didn't feel embarrassed enough to stay. Okay, let's be clear. Um, But I felt some embarrassment and I felt like, you know, this is not the normal internship experience and maybe I should have just stuck with social work. But what I have saw is that this goes on in internships a lot. Um, I actually talked to someone last night about this. One of the ladies who graciously reached out to me and told me I can like talk to her about this. And she kind of gave me a, you know, experience a detailed experience. I won't share her experience because she's not going to be one of the interviewees, so it's not my position. But she shared with me a little bit about an internship that she had when she was, you know, still in school. And I'm like, wow, like this is, I don't know. I feel like the schools definitely kind of vet the place of employment, the internship site for like to make sure they have like the properly credentialed people own staff but maybe they need to also vet like the workplace culture and maybe do some interviews with some of the current employees to be like hey how is it working here what are you know what is the internship like for like experience like for the interns or you know something because this happened to way more y'all than I expected at all okay the other thing I wanted to mention about the survey, and this wasn't a question, but I was just like, you know, is there anything else you want to tell me? Um, and a lot of people mentioned the mental health part that they were experiencing, anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, also physical health reasons, you know. It was just bad. It was just bad. Um, so I am just like people were literally diagnosed with depression and PTSD and anxiety because of abusive supervision supervisors. And I have always been one to like jump ship when I feel like there's no hope left. And I'm quick. Like it don't take me long to figure out there's no hope left. But I can. I can also see how, like, if you've been in a place for a while or if you're 
you know, dependent on this income for your family or you just kind of are, you know, was wanting this experience or wanting this job or whatever, I can see how it could make you stay. A lot of people, what's funny is a lot of people said they were there for two years. Now, some people said they were there for two years after the abuse happened, but also looking for employment. So not like just waiting there, twiddling their their thumbs and hoping it gets better. Um, but two years was like a good average amount of time that it's, people said that they left. Either they left after two years or they left within like three to four months is what I noticed in the survey. Like either you stayed for a couple years or you left within like the first three months of the abuse. And something that was in the literature that I didn't discuss was like people's different working styles. Like some people like really respect authority. So they respect their supervisor's roles and they um, like direction. So they thrive under good supervisors who provide, you know, clear direction, good support. But they are like, they're very much like, I respect hierarchy, hierarchy. And so those people are more likely to leave quickly um, when abusive supervision happens because they're not receiving good supervision. So like what they need to thrive is supervisors who can provide clear direction, who are fair, who um, are supportive, but also highly directional. Like they don't necessarily mind, I wouldn't say micromanagement, but they don't mind having like instructions and a task kind of person like this is what you need to do today this is what I expect they thrive in those kind of environments but then there are people who um do not thrive like they are people who don't need a lot of direction who prefer to work you know independently um and they need their voices to be heard too like they don't need direction they don't want direction they want the autonomy and the agency to make their own decisions. And those people actually stayed in employee, in abusive supervision relationships longer because they didn't really necessarily care about the person and they didn't look up to the person. Like they didn't want a role model. They didn't want someone to tell them what to do. So they could disconnect a little easier from like the roles of this is my supervisor and, you know, they're not treating me well. I just won't deal with them. And I kind of feel like that would be me. <laughs> I don't know for sure because I've had two separate occasions where one, though, was not my direct supervisor. Neither, actually, neither were my direct supervisors. Um, so I can't really say, but I do know that I really enjoy, like, I don't. I need to have my voice heard. I do feel like someone's listening, but I also... I don't need to be like pinpointed into this hierarchy of like, well, I'm just a little old employee and you're my supervisor, which means I'll do whatever you say. Um, and that's not necessarily a negative thing when I say it like that. So I'm sorry if it came off that way, because that could be very positive and it's all based on what you need. I just know me and I know I like to I like to talk my talk sometimes and tell people what I'm really feeling <laughs> or whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but anyway, back to, dang it, I got off track, back to the mental health concerns. The fact that the literature shows that, of course, mental health issues 
can come from abusive supervision. And I experienced anxiety. Like if I had stayed there, I would have had, like I could have been diagnosed with anxiety. I'm sure of it. But also like PTSD, depression, like these are very serious. Um, and people were saying they were diagnosed with this due to workplace trauma. So I implore you that if you are, you know, feeling this this way or experiencing any of these symptoms, start making an exit plan. I know it's not easy. It's just I'm going to quit. But start making that exit plan. Get your strategy together. Start interviewing. Get your resume together. Like whatever you need to do because no job is worth your mental health. No job is worth your physical health. I literally quit a job at a call center before because staring at the screen all day gave me migraines and I went to the doctor twice and the second time the doctor told me that I would need to take migraine medicine to work and I was like mm. I talked to my husband and he's like okay go ahead because I was like I can't take medicine just to be able to work and it wasn't even like the job was not high stress or anything I didn't enjoy it because I don't enjoy that kind of work but it was because I was like nah if I gotta take medicine to work it's not worth it to me um so I just say please choose you choose your family choose your health over these employee employers because you know to me it's not worth it if it's worth it to you I'm not one to say but I don't want anyone to experience that all right guys i think that is all if y'all have any questions about these survey results and if y'all want to see them i can definitely figure out how to share them i did them on a google yeah i can download these yes i did on like a google form so if y'all want to see these i'm willing to share because i have no kind of um identifying information on this at all i literally ask people their age their race their gender and that's all i ask people <laughs> to share with me so i would not be in violation of anything if anyone wants to have this just email me at aspiring black social worker and i will freely share All right, good people, that is the end of this long episode of Aspiring Black Social Worker. It's probably not as long as I think, but I feel like I've been talking for a long time. So, <laughs> um, once again, I want to let you know that this is a three-part mini-series. We will go back to my regularly formatted podcast episodes after this three-part mini-series up until I graduate, which at that point I'm hoping to become a little you know, more organized and better at this whole podcasting thing. Maybe even rename my segments when I have time to really think of some cool names for the segments. Um, so these three-part series will all come out on the same day because I am trying to get them to my field supervisor ASAP so he can know that I am done. Um, and yeah. If you have any questions about anything, not just survey results, definitely email me at aspiringblacksocialworker at gmail.com. Guys, I think I'm open to like having guests on the podcast, not necessarily to review, like interview them because that's, I, 
I am more of a banter kind of person. I like when I listen to podcasts, I really enjoy like listening to like two people have a conversation and it feels like I'm in the conversation. So if you are open or you know want to be a guest on the podcast, shoot me an email. This is not a paid um gig, so keep that in mind. <laughs> um what else? Follow me on Instagram at aspiring black social worker. And I will talk to y'all later. Bye.